Introducing a new association of churches in Mid-America, MARBAC. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches is a regional association for Reformed Baptist churches holding to the 1689 Confession of Faith with a goal of partnering together for the advance of the gospel and supporting and planting churches in the region. To learn more or find out how you can be involved, visit marbac.org. That's M-A-R-B-A-C dot org. Welcome to the Man of God podcast. The Man of God podcast is an outreach and ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. I have in my hand a book called Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ that was published by the Reformed Baptist Academic Press. I have already been narrating the warning passages of John Owen for the second time from the book of Hebrews. And since most of this work consists of John Owen's exposition of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 14, I wanted to give the listeners of this podcast a 30-minute introduction to that exposition to get somebody either interested in this book, which would be a good start, but also to introduce the listeners of this podcast who haven't read John Owen at any length, a section of his commentary on Hebrews, to appreciate him as a theologian and as an expositor. If you want to hear his applications, though, please go to the narrated Puritan at the website puritanaudiobooks.com where you will not only find the many observations and warnings in Hebrews drawn out at length by John Owen, but many of his other experimental treatises, which would be a good introduction to him. Thank you for tuning in. The following reading is from John Owen's commentary on Hebrews, starting with chapter 8, verse 6, the difference between the two covenants. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. There is no material difference in any translators, ancient or modern. Their significance in particular will be given in the exposition. In this verse begins the second part of the chapter, concerning the difference between the two covenants, the old and the new, with the preeminence of the latter above the former, and of the ministry of Christ above the high priests on that account. The whole church state of the Jews with all their ordinances and worship of it, and the privileges annexed to it, depended wholly on the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. But the introduction of this new priesthood of which the apostle is discoursing did necessarily abolish that covenant and put an end to all sacred ministrations that belonged to it. And this could not well be offered to them without the supply of another covenant, which should excel the former in privileges and advantages. For it was granted among them that it was the design of God to carry on the church to a perfect state. This has been declared on chapter 7, to that end he would not lead it backward, nor deprive it of anything it had enjoyed, without provision of what was better in its room instead. This, therefore, the apostle here undertakes to declare, and he does it after his usual manner, from such principles and testimonies as were admitted among them. Two things to this purpose he proves by express testimonies out of the prophet Jeremiah. Number one, that besides the covenant made with her fathers in Sinai, God had promised to make another covenant with the church in this appointed time and season. 
Number two, that this other promised covenant should be of another nature than the former, and much more excellent as to spiritual advantages to them who were taken into it. From both these, fully proved, the apostle infers the necessity of the abrogation of that first covenant, in which they trusted, and to which they adhered when the appointed time was come. And on this he takes occasion to declare the nature of the two covenants in various instances, and in which the differences between them consisted. This is the substance of the remainder of this chapter. This verse is a transition from one subject to another, namely, from the excellence of the priesthood of Christ above that of the law, to the excellence of the new covenant above the old. And in this also the apostle skillfully comprises and confirms his last argument of the preeminency of Christ, his priesthood and ministry above those of the law. And this he does from the nature and excellence of that covenant of which he was a mediator in the discharge of his office. There are two parts of the words, first, an assertion of the excellency of the ministry of Christ, and this he expresses by way of comparison, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, and after, he declares the degree of that comparison, by how much also. Secondly, he annexes the proof of this assertion, and that he is the mediator of a better covenant, established on better or more excellent promises. An assertion of the excellence of the ministry of Christ. In the first of these, there occur these five things. One, the note of its introduction, but now. Two, what is described in the assertion to the Lord Christ, and that is a ministry. Three, how he came by that ministry. He has obtained it. Four, the quality of this ministry, it is better or more excellent than the other. Five, the measure and degree of this excellence by how much also the introduction of the assertion. The introduction of the assertion is by the particles that mean but now. It's a note of time, of the present time. But there are instances where these adverbial particles thus conjoined do not seem to denote any time or season, but are merely adversative. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. But even in those places there seems a respect to time also, and therefore I know not why it should be here excluded, as therefore there is an opposition intended to the Old Covenant, and the Levitical priesthood. So the season is intimated of the introduction of the new covenant and a better ministry by which it was accompanied. Now, at this time, which is a season that God has appointed for the introduction of the new covenant and ministry, to the same purpose the apostle expresses himself, treating of the same subject, Romans 3, verse 26, to declare at this instant season now the gospel is preached, his righteousness, first practical observation. God in his infinite wisdom gives proper times and seasons to all his dispensations to and towards the church. So the accomplishment of these things was in the fullness of times. Ephesians 1 verse 10, that is, when all things rendered it seasonable and suitable to the condition of the church, 
and for the manifestation of his own glory. He hastens all his works of grace in their own appointed time, Isaiah 60, verse 22. And our duty is to leave the ordering of all the concerns of the church and the accomplishment of promises to God in his own time, Acts 1, verse 7. What is ascribed to Christ in the assertion? That which is ascribed to the Lord Christ is a ministry. The priests of old had a ministry. They ministered at the altar as in the foregoing verse. And the Lord Christ was a minister also, so the apostle had said before he was, verse 2, a minister of the holy things. To that end he had a liturgy, a ministry, a service committed to him. And two things are included in this. One, that it was an office of ministry that the Lord Christ undertook. He is not called a minister with respect to one particular act of ministration. So we are said to minister to the necessity of the saints, which yet denotes no office in them that do so. But he had a standing office committed to him, as the word imports. In that sense also, he is called a minister in office, Romans 15, verse 8. Number two, subordination to God is included in this. With respect to the church's office is supreme, accompanied with sovereign power and authority. He is Lord over his own house, but he holds his office and subordination to God, being faithful to him that appointed him. So the angels are said to minister to God, Daniel 7, verse 10. That is to do all things according to his will and at his command. So the Lord Christ had a ministry. Second practical observation. And we may observe that the whole office of Christ was designed to the accomplishment of the will and dispensation of the grace of God. For these ends was his ministry committed to him. We can never sufficiently admire the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and undertaken this office for us. The greatness and glory of the duties which he performed and the discharge of it, with the benefits we receive by that means are unspeakable, being the immediate cause of all grace and glory. Yet we are not absolutely to rest in them, but to ascend by faith to the eternal spring of them. This is the grace, the love, the mercy of God all acted in a way of sovereign power. These are everywhere in the scriptures represented as the original spring of all grace and the ultimate object of our faith with respect to the benefits which we receive by the mediation of Christ. His office was committed to him of God, even the Father, and his will did he do in a discharge of it. Third practical observation. Yet also the condescension of the Son of God to undertake the office of the ministry on our behalf is unspeakable and forever to be admired. Especially will it appear so to be when we consider who it was who undertook it, what it cost him, what he did and underwent in the pursuance and discharge of it, as it is all expressed in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Not only what he continues to do in heaven at the right hand of God, belongs to this ministry, but also that he suffered also on the earth. His ministry and the undertaking of it was not a dignity, a promotion, a revenue. Matthew 20, verse 28. It is true it is issued in glory, but not until he had undergone all the evils that human nature is capable of undergoing. And we ought to undergo anything cheerfully for him who underwent this ministry for us.
Fourth practical observation, the Lord Christ, by undertaking this office of the ministry, has consecrated and made honorable that office to all that are rightly called to it and do rightly discharge it. It is true his ministry and ours are not of the same kind in nature, but they do agree in this, that they are both a ministry to God and the holy things of his worship. And considering that Christ himself was God's minister, we have far greater reason to tremble in ourselves on an apprehension of our own insufficiency for such an office than to be discouraged with all the hardships and contests we meet in the world on the account of it. How Christ came into this ministry. The general way in accordance with which our Lord Christ came to the ministry is expressed he obtained it, which either means to have a lot or portion, or to have anything happen to a man as it were by accident, or to attain or obtain anything which before we had not. But the apostle intends not to express in this word a special call of Christ, or the particular way in accordance with which he came to his ministry but only in general that he had it and was possessed of it in the appointed season, which before he had not. The way in accordance with which he entered on the whole office and work of his mediation, he expresses in Hebrews 1 verse 4, he had it by inheritance, that is, by free grant and perpetual donation made to him as a son. See the exposition on that place. There were two things that concurred to his obtaining this ministry. One, the eternal purpose and counsel of God designing him to that, an act of the divine will accompanied with infinite wisdom, love, and power. Number two, the actual call of God to which many things concurred, especially his unction with the spirit above measure for the holy discharge of his whole office. Thus he did obtain this ministry, and not by any legal constitution, succession, or carnal right, as did the priests of old. Fifth, practical observation. And we may see that the exaltation of the human nature of Christ into the office of this glorious ministry depended solely on the sovereign wisdom, grace, and love of God. When the human nature of Christ was united to the divine, it became, in the person of the Son of God, fit and capable to make satisfaction for the sins of the church and to procure righteousness and life eternal for all that believe but it did not merit that union, nor could do so. For as it was utterly impossible that any created nature by any act of its own should merit the hypostatical union, so it was granted to the human nature of Christ antecedently to any act of its own in way of obedience to God. For it was united to the person of the Son by virtue of that union. To that end, antecedently to it, it could merit nothing. Therefore, his whole exaltation and the ministry that was discharged in that respect depended solely on the sovereign wisdom and pleasure of God. And in this election and designation of the human nature of Christ to grace and glory, we may see the pattern and example of our own. For if it was not in the consideration or foresight of the obedience of the human nature of Christ, that it was predestinated and chosen to the grace of the hypostatical union, with the ministry and glory which depended for that reason, but of the mere sovereign grace of God, how much less could a foresight of anything in us be the cause why God should choose us in him before the foundation of the world to grace and glory? 
the quality of this ministry. The quality of this ministry thus obtained as to a comparative excellence is also expressed by more excellent. The word is used only in this epistle in this sense, chapter 1, verse 4, and in this place. The original word denotes only a difference from other things, but in the comparative degree, as here, it signifies a difference with a preference or a comparative excellence. The ministry of the Levitical priests was good and useful in his time and season. This of our Lord Jesus Christ so differed from it as to be better than it and more excellent. The preeminence of this ministry. And there is added to this the degree of this preeminence so far as it is intended in this place and the present argument in the word that means by how much, so much more excellent by how much. The excellence of his ministry above that of the Levitical priest bears proportion with the excellence of the covenant of which he was a mediator above, the old covenant in which they administered of which afterwards. So we have explained the apostle's assertion concerning the excellency of the ministry of Christ. And by this means, he closes his discourse, which he had so long engaged in, about the preeminence of Christ in his office above the high priests of old. And indeed, this being the very hinge on what his whole controversy with the Jews did depend, he cannot give it too much evidence or too full a confirmation. 6. Practical Observation And as to what concerns ourselves at presence, we are taught by that means that it is our duty and our safety to consent universally and absolutely in the ministry of Jesus Christ, that which he was designed to in the infinite wisdom and grace of God that which he was so furnished for the discharge of by the communication of the Spirit to him in all fullness, that which all other priesthoods were removed to make way for must needs be sufficient and effectual for all the ends to which it is designed. It may be said, this is that which all men, all who are called Christians, do fully consent in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But if it be so, why do we hear the bleeding of another sort of cattle? What means those other priests and reiterated sacrifices which make up the worship of the Church of Rome? If they rest in the ministry of Christ, why did they appoint one of their own to do the same things that he has done, namely, to offer sacrifice to God? Secondly, the proof of this assertion lies in the latter part of these words by how much he is the mediator of a better covenant, which on better promises. The words are so disposed that some think the apostle intends now to prove the excellency of the covenant from the excellence of his ministry in that respect. But the other sense is more suited to the compass of the place and the nature of the argument with which the apostle presses the Hebrews. For on supposition that there was indeed another and that a better covenant to be introduced and established than that which the Levitical priests served in, which they could not deny, it plainly follows that he on whose ministry the dispensation of that covenant depended must of necessity be more excellent in that ministry than they who appertained to that covenant which was to be abolished. However, it may be granted that these things do mutually testify to and illustrate one another. Such as the priest is, such as the covenant such as a covenant is, and dignity, such as a priest also. 
In the words, there are three things observable. Number one, what is in general ascribed to Christ, declaring the nature of his ministry? He was a mediator. Number two, the determination of his mediatorial office to the new covenant of a better covenant. Number three, the proof or demonstration of the nature of this covenant as to its excellence. It was established on better promises. The office of mediator. His office is that of a mediator, one that interposed between God and man for the doing of all those things in accordance with which a covenant might be established between them and made effectual. Schlichtingius on the place gives this description of a mediator, quote, being a mediator is nothing other than being the negotiator of God and the go-between and settling his covenant with men, through whom, in other words, both God might disclose his own will to men, and they in turn might agree with God, and having been reconciled with them, they might experience peace for the future. And Grotius speaks much to the same purpose. But this description of a mediator is wholly applicable to Moses, and suited to his office and giving of the law. See Exodus 20, verse 19. Deuteronomy 5, verses 27 and 28. What is said by them does indeed immediately belong to the mediatorial office of Christ, but it is not confined to that, yea, it is exclusive of the principal parts of his mediation. And although there is nothing in it but what belongs to the prophetical office of Christ, which the apostle here does not principally intend, it is most properly applied as a description of such a mediator as he does intend. And therefore, when he comes afterwards to declare in particular what belonged to such a mediator of the covenant as he designed, he expressly places it in his death for the redemption of transgressions, chapter 9, verse 15, affirming that for that cause he was a mediator. But of this there is nothing at all in the description they give us of this office, but this the apostle does in his writings elsewhere, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. The principal part of mediation consisted in a giving himself a ransom or a price of redemption for the whole church. On that ground, this description of a mediator of the New Testament is pretended only to exclude his satisfaction or his offering himself to God in his death and blood shedding with the atonement made by that means. The Lord Christ, then, in his ministry, is called the mediator of the covenant, in the same sense as he is called the surety, of which see the exposition of chapter 7, verse 22. He is in the new covenant, the mediator, the surety, the priest, the sacrifice, all in his own person. The ignorance and lack of a due consideration of this are the great evidence of the degeneracy of Christian religion. Although this is the first general notion of the office of Christ, that which comprises the whole ministry committed to him, and contains in itself the special offices of king, priest, and prophet, in accordance with which he discharges his mediation, some things must be mentioned that are declarative of its nature and use. And we may to this purpose observe, first, that to the office of a mediator, it is required that there be different persons concerned in the covenant, and that by their own wills, as must be in every compact of whatsoever sort. So says our apostle, a mediator is not of one, but God is one, Galatians 3 verse 20. That is, if there were none but God concerned in this manner, 
as it is in an absolute promise or sovereign precept, there would be no need of, no place for a mediator, such a mediator as Christ is. To that end, our consent in and to the covenant is required in the very notion of a mediator. Number two, that the persons entering into covenant be in such a state and condition as that it is no way convenient or morally possible that they should treat immediately with each other as to the ends of the covenant. For if they are so a mediator to go between is altogether needless. So was it in the original covenant with Adam, which had no mediator. But in the giving of the law, which was to be a covenant between God and a people, they found themselves utterly insufficient for an immediate treaty with God, and therefore desired that they might have an internuncio to go between God and them, to bring his proposals and carry back their consent, Deuteronomy 5, verses 23 to 27. And this is a voice of all men really convinced of the holiness of God and of their own condition, such as the state between God and sinners. The law and the curse of it did so interpose between them that they could not enter into any immediate treaty with God, Psalm 5, verses 3 to 5. This made a mediator necessary that the new covenant might be established, of which we will speak afterwards. Number three, that he who is his mediator be accepted, trusted, and rested in on either sides of the parties mutually entering into a covenant. An absolute trust must be reposed in him, so that each party may be everlastingly obliged in what he undertakes on their behalf, and such as admit not of his terms can have no benefit by nor interest in the covenant. So was it with the Lord Christ in this manner? On the part of God, he reposed the whole trust of all the concerns of the covenant in him, and absolutely rested in that respect. Behold, he says of him, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delights, or is well pleased, Isaiah 42, verse 1, Matthew 3, verse 17. When he undertook this office and said, Lo, I have come to do your will, O God. The soul of God rested in him, Exodus 23, 21, John 5, 20 to 22. On our part, unless we resign ourselves absolutely to a universal trust in him and reliance on him, and unless we accept of all the terms of the covenant as by him proposed, and engage to stand to all that he has undertaken on our behalf, we can have neither share nor interest in this matter. Number four, a mediator must be a middle person between both parties entering into a covenant. And if they be of different natures, a perfect, complete mediator ought to partake of each of their natures in the same person. The necessity of this, and the glorious wisdom of God in this, I have elsewhere at large demonstrated, and will not therefore here again insist on it. Number five, a mediator must be one who voluntarily and of his own accord undertakes the work of mediation. This is required of everyone who will effectually mediate between any persons at variance to bring them to an agreement on equal terms. So it was required that the will and consent of Christ should concur in his reception of this office, and that they did so himself expressly testifies Hebrews 10 verses 5 to 10. It is true he was designed and appointed by the Father to this office. By reason of this, he is called a servant and constantly witnesses of himself that he came to do the will and commandment of him that sent him. But he had that to do in the discharge of this office, which could not, according to any rule of divine righteousness, be imposed on him without his own voluntary consent.
and this is the ground of the eternal compact that was between the Father and the Son, with respect to his mediation, which I have elsewhere explained. And the testification of his own will, grace, and love, in the reception of this office, is the principal motive to that faith and trust, which the church places in him as a mediator between God and them. On this his voluntary undertaking does the soul of God rest in him, and he reposes the whole trust in him of accomplishing his will and pleasure, or to the design of his love and grace in this covenant. Isaiah 53, 10-12 And the faith of the church on what salvation depends must have love to his person inseparably accompany in it. Love to Christ is no less necessary to salvation than faith in him. And his faith is resolved into the sovereign wisdom and grace of God in sending him, and his own ability to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. So love arises from the consideration of his own love and grace in his voluntary undertaking of this office and a discharge of it. Number six, in this voluntary undertaking to be a mediator, two things were required. First, that he should remove and take out of the way whatever kept the covenanters at a distance or was the cause of enmity between them. For it is supposed that such an enmity there was, or there had been no need of a mediator. Therefore, in the covenant made with Adam, there having been no variance between God and man, nor any distance but what necessarily ensued from the distinct natures of the Creator and a creature, there was no mediator. But the design of this covenant was to make reconciliation and peace. On this, therefore, depended the necessity of satisfaction, redemption, and a making of atonement by sacrifice. For man, having sinned and apostatized from the rule of God, making himself by that means subject to his wrath, according to the eternal rule of righteousness, and in particular to the curse of the law, there could be no new peace and agreement made with God, unless due satisfaction were made for these things. For although God was willing in infinite love, grace, and mercy to enter into a new covenant with fallen man, Yet would he not do it to the prejudice of his righteousness, the dishonor of his rule, and the contempt of his law? To that end, none could undertake to be a mediator of this covenant, but he that was able to satisfy the justice of God, glorify his government, and fulfill the law. And this could be done by none but him, concerning whom it might be said that God purchased his church with his own blood." Secondly, that he should procure and purchase in a way suited to the glory of God, the actual communication of all the good things prepared and proposed in this covenant, that is, grace and glory, with all that belongs to them, for them, and on their behalf, whose surety he was. And this is the foundation of the merit of Christ, and of the grant of all good things to us for his sake, to and undertake for the parties mutually concerned, as to the accomplishment of the terms of the covenant, undertaken on each hand for them. First, on the part of God towards men, that they will have peace and acceptance with him, and a sure accomplishment of all the promises of the covenant. This he does only declaratively in the doctrine of the gospel, and in the institution of the ordinances of evangelical worship. For he was not a surety for God, nor did God need any, having confirmed his promise with an oath swearing by himself because he had no greater to swear by. On our part, he undertakes to God for our acceptance of the terms of the covenant and our accomplishment of them by enabling us to that. Seventh practical observation. 
These things, among others, were necessary to a full and complete mediator of the new covenant, such as Christ was. And the provision of this mediator between God and man was an outworking of infinite wisdom and grace. Yea, it was the greatest and most glorious external accomplishment of them that ever they did produce or ever will do in this world. The creation of all things at first out of nothing was a glorious work of infinite wisdom and power. But then when the glory of that design was eclipsed by the entrance of sin, this provision of a mediator, one in accordance with which all things were restored and retrieved to a condition of bringing more glory to God, and securing forever the blessed estate of them whose mediator he is, is accompanied with more evidences of the divine excellencies than that was.